Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, I want to start out by discussing the F word. Now, on this podcast, the F word is not a bad word. And by F word, I mean flop. A musical flop is the term that we have come to associate with musicals that have failed on Broadway, whether it's artistically or financially, usually both. But what I want to do is to always make room for conversations about flops because our failures often teach us much more about the art form and about the society in which they're created than sometimes even our successes. Three of the shows that are quote-unquote flops that I've been most fascinated with have been A Doll's Life, Minnie's Boys, and Grind. And what's so freaking awesome is the guest who's going to join me in a conversation about these three shows today is the composer, Mr. Larry Grossman. Say hi, Larry. Hi there. Yay! Welcome, everybody, to A Musical Theater Podcast, where we discuss the emotional and cultural impact of some of our favorite shows in musical theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about A Doll's Life, Minnie's Boys, and Grind. Now, Larry Grossman, you were kind enough to come on this show, and I am so very grateful. Thank you. Thank you. It's fun to be here. You are an esteemed composer. You have had and continue to have an amazing career. We were just talking about how um, my friends up at 42nd Street Moon in San Francisco have enjoyed now for a couple of years sold out crowds to your new show, Scrooge and Love. The third year they've done it. The third year, right? Yeah. So there's really no sign of you slowing down creatively. And you've had amazing successes that I, I want to actually talk about really quickly here at the top. I'm a huge Disney fan, and you worked on The Great Mouse Detective and Princess Diaries, too. Oh, and Pocahontas, too. Let's not forget. (laughs) Judy Kuhn was still singing on it, right? Sure was. That's amazing. I think one of your best-known musicals is Snoopy, which has been done in so many languages all over the world. It's still done a lot. Yeah. You uh, won a Peabody Award for working on The Muppet Show. Iconic. The Muppet Show was fun. I mean... It was all done in London, you know. Was it really? Yeah. The studio and everything was in London? Oh, yeah. And the guest stars came over there. We're flown Part to of my job, a big part of my job, was helping choose the guest stars. Oh, well, you did and, a great job. And there were a few who I just treasure having worked with. You also have worked on countless TV music specials from you know the 60s and 70s, Julie Andrews, Shirley MacLaine, Liza Minnelli, Goldie Hawn. You also co-wrote the Peace on Earth Little Drummer Boy song that is now a Christmas standard with Bing Crosby and David it's, Bowie. It's amazing how that happened. Yeah, tell me. It was Bing Crosby, what turned out to be Bing Crosby's last TV special. He sadly died about six weeks later. Wow. But um, he had those annual shows with his family, the Christmas shows. Right. Which, after a few years, got tire- tiresome. Mm-hmm. The previous one was done here in L.A. with Fred Astaire as the guest star. Oh. But anyway, the uh, one in London... The guest star was David Bowie. <laughs> he came in to the first 
production meeting to read the script and go through what we were doing. Came in with a full makeup and a floor-length mink coat. Yeah, it was really <laughs> quintessential David Bowie. And his wife, then wife was with him. They were dressed like twins. And we sat down, and uh, he said, the script is really acute, I think is the word he said, but well, what do you really want me to sing? Mm. And Gary Smith, who was the producer, I said, well, we, we really want you to do a duet with Bing of Little Drummer Boy, because it, it's written in thirds, you know, and it's just perfect harmony. Thing. Great, yeah. And he said, I won't sing that song. If I have to sing that song, I won't do the show. He was absolutely was against hate that Little song, Drummer Boy. And I just don't want to go on television and sing it. Right. Know? Anyway, uh, what do we do? Gary Smith, write a counterpoint. So we went in our little, back in our little room and wrote uh, the Peace, Peace on, on Earth. Earth. And it took maybe a half hour. Wow. <laughs> and we brought it in the next day, and Bowie came and said, I love this. I, oh. I've got to do it. Inspired. And then, and then uh, I think it was my question. I said, well, why are you doing this show? And my mother loves being cruel. <laughs> A mom is It is a gift to mom, oh. or his mom, I think, and it's, uh, it's come, become like a standard. Hey everybody, I'm pressing pause on my conversation with Larry to explain a little bit about how this episode's going to go, because it's very different than any other episode I've done so far. Since we're talking about shows that are really difficult to see, Larry and I are going to talk about the show, and then throughout the episode, you'll hear anecdotes, stories, and uh, testimonials, if you will, from people who saw the show on Broadway or have been involved in production since then. I think it's actually really fun, and thank you to all those who participated. So sit back and enjoy these many perspectives on these great shows. So you've obviously had so much success and so many great stories and wonderful memories. When you have experiences that are labeled and i say that in you know the quotation F-word. marks with right. the f word does that shade your memories oh, of absolutely. them in a different way absolutely yeah and does it still sting a little bit or how do you feel about these three projects uh well i have different feelings about all three well that's cool uh minnie's boys was the first show i did mm-hmm. and it was like i had died in bunch of heaven yeah it was up until a certain point just a joyous experience so that that was an introduction to the world of Broadway, mm-hmm. and the show kept getting it changing, but in bad ways. Everyone got fired except Hal Hackett and High mm. for the score. There, there's like a youthful exuberance and joy to the beginning of the Minnie's yeah, Boys it was, experience. It was the first, it's the first book show I ever wrote. Minnie's Boys opened in 1970 and closed after 80 performances. 80 performances. Uh-huh. It lasted for 80 performances, I think, because of the popularity of the subject matter. It, 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 we had a huge advance, but when the reviews came out, the advance disappeared. Kind of dissipated. And it just dropped every week, and yeah. suddenly it was not viable. The show shows how Five Sons became Groucho, Chico, Harpo, Zeppo, and Gummo, a.k.a. the Marx Brothers. For anybody out there who might not know who the Marx Brothers are, incredibly famous troupe of brothers who invented and perfected this style of comedy that was preserved on film in Duck Soup and A Night at the Opera, both of which are considered two of the best comedy films of all time. And their humor was always highlighted by anarchy. They always had the best of intentions, but wherever they showed up, Mm -hmm. chaos soon followed. And that sense of humor has continued to influence comedies today, cartoons, especially animated series like Family Guy, all do Marx Brothers bits. And what 
Minnie's boys did was look at how they came to be. And the force behind that evolution was their mother, Minnie, who was kind of the first momager. You know, stand aside, Kardashians. Um, <laughs> Minnie was laying the groundwork for... She was also ahead of Mama Rose, too. Right. And Mama I, Rose was like a decade later. And I think that also that was one of the things that, that hurt the show, right? Were the, compar- the constant comparisons yeah, constant to Gypsy. Yeah, constant comparisons to it. Yeah, Gypsy she, She's being, no Ethel Merman. We heard that a lot. But also, I don't think you were creating a Mama Rose with Minnie, were you? Had no, you no, set out I, to no, create it, a Mama it, Rose? It was not the character at all. She's much more lovable and funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, the day that the casting happened, we were all at Groucho's house, and we were sitting at his dining room table having, like, lunch. And... Uh, he said, have you guys given any thought who you want to play my mother? And Arthur's white loss piped up. He said, yeah, as a matter of fact, we have. He said, who is that? Toadie Fields. He pushed his chair away from the table. This is, a quote. this is a quote. If that fat Jew plays my mother, I wash my hands of this project. Wow. And he got up and went down the hall and came back with a photograph from the wall. Mm-hmm. And he held up the picture and uh, he said, who does this look like? And Arthur said, Shelley Winters. Mm-hmm. He said, that's who's going to play my mother. Wow. That's how Shelley got the part. If I'm being totally honest, I'm a big Shelley Winters fan in terms of film. Are you really? Yeah. I mean, watching her on film is fascinating because she is always... Well, she's an original. Yeah, she's a to- you're exactly right. You're- but, you know, I, well, I worked with Shelley for several weeks teaching her the songs mm-hmm. in her living room. And I said, no, oh, maybe she, this will work. And I looked up on the mantel, there are two Oscars. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned it to uh, a film person. He said, well, yeah, you know why, how she got those Oscars. Shelley's performances are edited. And like George Stevens, when they did the, the Diary of Anne Frank, just cut out you know half of what she actually performed on the set. She was kind of meant for that medium in a oh, way. Oh, absolutely. And she she was she was fun. But anyway, when we got in the theater, and it was just it was just hopeless. And she missed previews, or she went out with book in hand, and uh, it just got worse and worse. So when we tried to fire Shelley X number of weeks later. Shelley's manager came to it and said, the only way we'll, Shelley will leave the show is if you pay her what she would have gotten to do a movie. She'd been offered a movie at the same time. Oh, boy. And uh, we couldn't afford it. We'd already spent the budget. And uh, we, that's how we ended up keeping her. One of the best-reviewed things of the show, besides many of your tunes, was Louis J. Stadlin, who played Groucho. And I think one of the real tragedies of this original production was that he was never nominated for a Tony Award for that performance. It hurt all of us because that was a Tony performance. It was. It was not only worthy for nomination, but for a win as well. Mm -hmm. And I've read that many people blame the New York Times review that basically said he was terrific, but maybe he's just doing an impression and is kind of a one-trick The New York Times review, uh, Clive Barnes was writing for for the Times then. Uh He, in reviewing the show... Had a line says, "Well, not to say that the score is gross and hack. It's not da 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 da." Oh, stop it! No, he did. Ugh. And the next day, at the Dramatists Guild meeting, Garson Kanan got up and condemned that line and wanted uh, a retraction from the, from the Times. They didn't get it. Anyway, it it, it had a, a band aid on it because we got a call that David Merrick wanted to meet with us. 
Really? With Hal and I, yeah. Came out of out Came of out of, He said, you, you guys got a rotten deal with that review. And he said, you're really good, and I'd like to work with you. That's wonderful. David Merrick, of course, being one of the most famous producers of all time. We've talked about him on the podcast before. He was the, the guy behind Hello, Dolly and countless others. The standout song of the entire show was La Rainbow, which became and has continued to be a well-known and, and often performed song in cabarets and concerts. And what I love, I think, most about the song, besides being a beautiful melody and a beautiful lyric, is that you guys wrote it for Harpo, who is a silent character. Always in film, that's, Harpo... That's why never said anything. The, the motives behind that was the fact that, that he would express himself in a way that he doesn't do anywhere in the show. Mm. The love spills out, and uh, it's tragic that Danny died so young. Danny Fortas came in to, to audition for Harpo. He was 17 years old. He came in in bib overalls, and uh, the piano player started to play, and what do you Move over, world. Da, da, da. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to hear from me. His voice was just incredible. This cute 17 year old kid mm-hmm. who had pet rabbits in his apartment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, Minnie's Boys was a fantastic concept and came out in a, you know, in 1970. The other big musicals at that point were Applause with Lauren Bacall, which is the musical version of All About Eve. So there was this kind of return to classic film as a source of new musical theater on Broadway. So Minnie's Boys did kind of fit right into that trend. So it seemed like a good fit. But it's interesting how the perfect circumstances can derail Uh, a a great project. It's interesting how a show can go wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. And the old adage about the theater, musical theater, is everybody has to be doing the same show. Mm. And we weren't. Hi, this is Susan Edwards Martin, and I had the pleasure of playing the role of Minnie in Minnie's Boys uh, for the Musical Theatre Guild's rendition last season at the Alex Theatre. And it was such a thrill to be in rehearsal and have Larry Grossman there. I mean, to have the the composer there working with you and watching you and helping to guide us through. Um, it was just thrilling and, and a total joy. And, uh, and to play the role of Minnie was so fulfilling for me. I mean, I'm, I'm a Jewish mom. I have a son. So to have all these sons in this, in this musical was so much fun for me. And I got to sing some great songs. I mean, it was just a, such a fulfilling experience. And um, just a little side note, when the show first came out on Broadway, I actually knew one of the originals of that. Um, his name was Danny Fortis. And he sang the song Mama a Rainbow. And I went to school. He had a brother, Barry Fortis, and we were in school together at the time, and Danny was a little bit younger. Anyway, we were so thrilled that when he got, you know, a Broadway show, that was like the most exciting things. Anyway, so that's my affiliation with Minnie's Boys, and um, Larry was just a delight to work with. Thanks. Hope you're having a great day. Bye. What's interesting then about A Doll's Life is that the greatest criticism that came from that show, which came out in 1982, was that conceptually people felt like it was a bad idea. That it was a bad idea to turn this story into a musical. (laughs) Um, 
A Doll's Life opened in, like I said, 1982, and closed only three days after it opened. Yeah, I played here in L.A. for ten weeks at the Almond. Oh, so so like so that I was know your the show so intimately because it because of that long run. Right. I came to New York, did a few previews, and closed after a weekend. I think Doll's Life is so fascinating. It's a musical that picks up where Henrik Ibsen's play A Doll's House ends. So Henrik Ibsen was a you know legendary playwright writes this show in 1879 called A Doll's House, and he's regularly known as the father of realism. You know, Shakespeare was often about kings and royalty and and also in prose, right? Moliere and Henrik Ibsen was kind of this first playwright to write a show about an everyday person and have them speak in an everyday way. And in A Doll's House, his character Nora is being, you know, mistreated or undervalued by her husband. And at the end of the show, uh, she leaves. She walks out and slams the door. And people have often talked about that, the slamming of that door as having repercussions throughout all of history. Well, it was one of the forces behind the suffragette movement. Right. People used it to bring about the ideals of feminism. So it's this fascinating play, and what a doll's life does is act as kind of a sequel. What happens to Nora? What happens to this character after the slamming of the door? And whose idea was it to do the show? Because uh, you, you did it with some legendary people. and Adolf had been, been on a, a tour or a visit to Scandinavia. Betty Comden and Adolf, Adolf Green. Green, right. Mm-hmm. And they, who, you know, wrote Singing in the Rain. They wrote... Absolutely. Uh, they're great theater writers. They, they got the idea while they were in Norway. Which thinking is where about Henry Gibson the, his is culture, from. yeah, and uh, they came up with this idea and brought it to Hal Prince. The same time that happened, uh, Hal had gotten interested in my work as a composer, and he kept thinking, "I got to get a show for you, kid." I, you know, he calls everybody kid. And, Hal Prince, uh, really fast, is one of the most legendary producer directors oh of, of Broadway history. Every musical that you respect is probably attached to Hal Prince somehow. <laughs> He said, uh, Betty and Adolf uh, came up with this idea. And he said, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by it. He said, this may be a long shot, Larry, but uh, would you be interested? Would you come to the office and meet with them? And I'd never met, you know, I worshipped them. But uh, went, went to the office and they, we had a, a nice chat. And I thought that they were kind of being polite to take the meeting. And uh, Hal said, well, why don't you go off and write what you think might be introductory music or a, a kind of a semi-version of an overture. He said, he said make it classical sounding, house and that, mm-hmm. which it was. And, it, and it's incredible. It's actually some of my favorite stuff that you've ever written. Because well, it's my favorite show. Is it? Yeah. The cast album is available on Amazon.com, so you can download it or buy a hard copy. I know. And I really recommend that people go and listen to it, especially you don't get characters singing music like that usually in music. Well, you know, it was an original idea. And we, but they liked what I had written, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I, I spent two years in a room with them I mean, uh, working, and it just, I learned so much working with them. The day that we wrote that opera sequence, the three of us were rolling on the floor. Oh. It, literally, it was in Betty's studio. Never laughed so hard in my life. I respected them so much. They got a raw deal from the critics. Yeah. Uh, it, it seemed like a true passion project of Betty in particular for this, exactly. for this piece. But, 
The thing for me is I felt with that show I made a transition from songwriter to composer. You know what I mean? That's huge. It's uh, it's subtle and yet huge at the same time. Previews here, people come back backstage and we didn't know you could do that. Yeah, right. And I, all I said was I didn't either. It was because of how people became aware of, of me and what I could do, and uh, it also fed into the work I was doing on television. That's so beautiful. Um, An audition, sorry, we yeah. were fishing for you know Anora, and one of the agents sent in this hoops girl, Meryl Streep. Oh. Yeah, and she came in and she said, it's a house office. Betty and over there, and I played several of the things. And she just, boy, I love this material. God, I love to do it. She said, I'm up for a film. I know if I, if I do it, it's going to change my life. It's Sophie's choice. Are you kidding me? Uh, so Meryl Streep auditioned for A Doll's Life and then got Sophie's Choice. Yeah, and then we auditioned Glenn Close. Why did you decide on Betsy? Well, Hal had worked with her. She was in Sweeney Todd. Oh, right. She took over in she Joanna. She played the, you know, uh, Joanna, right? Right. And her, her voice is magnificent. Mm-hmm. She has that clear bell-like sound like Juliet. Yeah. Uh, which is so rare. She did a uh, beautiful job. Of course, George Hearn was George Hearn. Yeah. And uh, the, the combination was great. That's great. I want to read something real fast, which is from one of my Bibles. (laughs) It's called Not Since Carrie, which is a book all about flops that Ken Mandelbaum wrote. I love this book. I've read it so many times. But in in talking about A Doll's Life, he he says this, and I, I disagree with him greatly, just to put that out there. If talents like Prince Compton Green and Grossman could not make A Doll's Life work, it was because the idea they started with was doomed to failure. Why ask what happened to Nora after she slammed the door at the end of a doll's house? Ibsen's play deliberately ended there, having made its point without needing to go any further. So that was his take, was why on earth do this in the first place? What I find so fascinating about that is fast forward to 2015, a play comes out on Broadway called A Doll's House Part 2. Yeah, that was a killer. Which becomes this huge hit wins a Tony Award for Laurie Metcalf in the title role. Everybody loves it. And here's the review from the New York Times about A Doll's House Part 2. A Doll's House Part 2 gives vibrant theatrical life to the conversations that many of us have had after first reading or seeing its prototype, conducted in our own minds or perhaps over blunts and beers in dorm rooms. Ibsen left his unlikely maverick of a heroine on the threshold of a dark and undefined future. Haven't you found yourself pondering not only Nora's fate, but also that of her abandoned husband and children? And I can't help but think, what does this say about our society? What changed from 1982 to then the 2000s that suddenly made this idea or this property viable and a good idea? When we opened with A Doll's Life, there was a huge movement against the feminist movement. Everybody was tired of it. They were tired of Gloria Stein. I mean, you know, all Mm -hmm. those champions of of women's rights. And uh, it permeated our society, and it was reflected in the reviews. Wow. Uh, The thing that I came away with from that show was it was almost divine retribution for that slam from uh, Clyde Barnes. This is Frank Rich, and he said that the only two people who knew what they were doing were George Hearn and Larry Grossman. Yes. Which I, I mean, I, that's high praise from from, from that Frank man. Rich. But uh, I said, okay, I'll buy that, you know. And uh, 
I still didn't make a show. It closed into three perform after three performances. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the things I found a little confusing. On, on top of this idea of the sequel was this idea that there was a show within the show, meaning that they were rehearsing, really a, rehearsing doll's a doll's house, house, and then the sequel began kind of as that actress playing Nora is trying to figure out the character. And whose idea was it to add that layer? Because that Hal, almost felt Hal, a little more confusing. Hal's idea. The set for that was, the opening set was a, a stage a rehearsal hall uh -huh. with all the the um, demarcations on it. You oh, could see yeah, yeah, where yeah. the furniture was placed and where all the spike people marks stood. And, and when the music said, bum, ba -da, ba -da, it flew. Oh, wow. It was like uh, what happened in, in uh, Phantom. Right. When I saw that in London the first time, I said, oh, my God. This nobody ever did that. Okay, cool. That so was that was it. Hal's idea. Interesting. How would you describe working with Hal Prince? As the greatest gift I ever got in my life. Wow. You know, he was a genius. I mean, uh, his creative event was like nobody else's. Mm -hmm. You know, he just he reinvented so much of, of the of musical theater, and he came up from being an office boy, George Abbott's office, to a stage manager, to a producer, and then becoming a director and a director of note. I mean, when uh, Cabaret opened, I was like, oh my god. It's like we didn't know he could do that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Calvary uh, was his dog. But he was so encouraging to me. He changed my life, you know. Mm -hmm. And Hal was my defender and uh, my champion. And uh, I loved him as a, as a person. Hi, this is Noel Katz, a musical theater writer who indeed saw A Doll's Life on Broadway way back then. And I was particularly taken with the song Stay With Me, Nora, uh, which in between the lines uses this wonderful set of parallel fourths. And I had been taught that you shouldn't use parallel fourths, but Larry Grossman did and made them beautiful. And for years afterwards, um, there were many situations like classes where people would walk into the room and introduce themselves. And if they had a uh, name that reminded me of a song, I would instantly play that song. And I was kind of waiting for a Nora to walk into the room because I so love playing the song Stay With Me, Nora. But the one time a Nora walked in the room, she didn't know the song. The third show that I wanted to talk to you about, which is Grind. Grind opened in 1985 and closed after 71 performances. It, like A Doll's Life, was directed by Hal Prince. It had a book by Faye Kanan, who had written a script for a, a film. A script. Yeah, right? For a movie to be made. Right. And it just wasn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then the opportunity came to turn it into a musical with you guys. What I love about this show we talked about Cabaret, how Hal Prince oversaw that show. It feels like an American Cabaret. Using the metaphor of a burlesque house in Chicago in the 1930s that then becomes a look at the hardships of racial injustice and the climb toward racial equality. And it's all kind of told within the structure of this burlesque house and the the grind, the dancing, the hustle, and it's a really great symbolism. You know, I grew up in Chicago. Oh, right. Yeah. So, and I grew up with all that corruption. Right. Mm. The idea of the black and white thing 
was really appealing to me because it would get me, give me a chance to write in two genres at the same time. We started to write it, and the main character was Satin, the, stripper. the chief stripper, uh, head stripper. And I remember playing it for uh, Debbie Allen. We were talking about Debbie Allen doing it, which would have been wonderful. Been wonderful, yeah. And Hal got a call from Ben Marine. He said, I'd love to work with you. I really respect you. And Hal called and said, what do you think about Ben Marine? I said, I don't know Ben Marine. So I went to meet him in a dressing room, I think in Paramount, one of the studios. And he was all Mr. Charm, you know, just uh, sparkly. And he was just, he was Ben Marine. Yeah. He's the legend at this point, having done Pippin and being a... Jesus a, Christ Superstar. Exactly, Superstar. his first show. And he was... a. Uh, a Fosse accolade, mm-hmm. but in a, in a good way. Yeah. So we did some, you know, obviously some rewriting. I remember Debbie was really disappointed because she was kind of a friend of mine. And it became about Leroy, the, the main character. And when you superimpose the famous burlesque comics of Stubby K and Joey Fay and all these people, on top of that, then you add... Uh, the Irish thing. There's, There's a lot, lot of, of story. It, so <laughs> it's just, uh, we started rehearsals and it was really exciting. Yeah. After two weeks of rehearsal, uh, Ben asked Hal if he could have the weekend off to, to go to Vegas to meet with his spiritual advisor. Came back stoned. One of the producers, was, was, they were on coke, and, and the choreographer, and it started to fall apart. I have your review here from the New York Times Hi. for Grind. And I just wanted to read the first part of it because, okay, so I got this book of all of Frank Rich's reviews in college. And I would sit, like, this was this was my nighttime reading as I would read <laughs> these different reviews of his. And just reading the first part of his Grind review, it sounds fascinating to be in the theater watching this. It says... The time is 1933, and the place is a Chicago burlesque house whose black and white performers are kept rigidly segregated on stage and off. Mr. Dunham's towering set can twirl to reveal the theater's gaudy marquee and facade, its stage, its wings, and its several flights of gloomy, clutter-filled dressing rooms. The labyrinthian backstage area suggests a teeming slum, as if Catfish Row had been plunked down in a Reginald Marsh painting of a Depression movie palace. That's pretty great writing. I mean, like, so evocative. And I was like, I want to be there. I'm sitting here reading this in college, right? (laughs) Thinking, oh my gosh, I want to be there. Soon we're watching the performers who slave at this theater, and their acts have a bleak, intriguing edge. When the lovely Leilani Jones, who was ultimately played Saturn, steps out on a light-ringed runway for a strip tease, there's no joy in her routine. Her face is as blank as a prostitute's. There was this sense of entertainment and intrigue that was undeniable. Well, people, you know, it has its fans. Yeah. Uh, to bring up Steve Sondheim, Hal took him to see a preview, and Steve called and he said, that's show. He says, he says, it's a... An eyeful and an earful. He said, yes, "He says it's all in primary colors," oh, wow. which to me was a compliment coming from, from him because you know, he doesn't give out many compliments. Right. But uh, uh, I, and when I hung up the phone, I said, "You know, he's he's right." And so you had this full brassy sound, but then kind of a bleak, almost angry tone to 
it's a totally it's about anger the show's yeah. about anger and Hal's the show is about what human beings do to other human beings the day we went in to record the, the, the cast album because we had the deal mm-hmm. which was exciting all those people in, in the recording yeah. studio Ben didn't come oh no he had a day shooting on a, a Jacques Cousteau underwater special so then and to that he came in two or three days later oh and recorded and, his yeah. stuff and there, there was one of the so I don't know whether I should well, it happened, so <laughs> we were in Baltimore. Ben wanted another number in the second act. We wrote a song, and uh, and part of Ben's deal, it was, it was blackmail, he said, I want Bob Fosse to stage it. Have you heard this show? Yeah, I, I knew that Bob Fosse had staged one number in Grind. And, and Hal and Ellen and I were not allowed in the rehearsal hall. And if you listen to the album... The orchestration, which was done by Gordon Orell, who was, was Bob's guy, mm-hmm. it, it sounds nothing, nothing like, like the, the rest, rest of the scale. It's contemporary. It's a great orchestration. Right. But if you're playing, say, what, so they made a mistake. Why is this thing all of it's like it was all Ben doing his nightclub back. Wow, which is what he should have been doing. Well, but, it, it seems like an ensemble show. I mean, there are was, so many was. characters. I mean, so like, the idea that there would just be this one star step out seems a little silly. He had done some great work, mm-hmm. and I continue to, to like him as a performer. Sure. And several years later, I had to work with him. It was on a UNICEF special, mm-hmm. the Danny Kay Awards, and for children internationally. Sure. And Ben was the featured performer. And uh, he arrived, and he looks. He saw me, and he said, "Like, can we talk?" I said, "Yeah." So he went went way back upstage, and he said, "We got a lot of." baggage don't we I said yeah but baggage is less than it was X years ago <laughs> so a lot of time heals everything a lot of he said yeah he said, I, I behave badly and uh, he said well, let's do some good work here we? what's fascinating about it is that in that same season Big River came out which was also you know a, about racial injustice but from maybe a more palatable standpoint it, okay. it was easier to, to stomach than Grind. I think Grind was very uncomfortable for people to watch. It was. It's this perfect storm of where we are as a society for what we want to consume. And also, on the creative side, musical theater is such a collaborative art form. And like you said... If, it is the most collaborative art If one person isn't on the same page, it can completely derail an entire project. Hi there, this is Stephen Cole... And I saw both A Doll's Life and Grind several times. Grind, I especially remember seeing Out of Town first and watching the progression with the changes of the songs, the changes of the book, the changes of the staging, and how much better the show got, even to the fact of the set turning during the opening number when it hit the Mark Hellinger. It was a very exciting show. It had its problems, of course, but I so loved the opening number, the staging of it. The music and lyrics are especially delightful and very hard-hitting in some cases. Hello, this is Glenn Rosenblum from Jeffrey Scott Parsons' musical theater podcast, uh, first episode of Fiddler on the Roof. I think Larry Grossman is one of the best Broadway composers, um, 
it's he just writes thrilling, thrilling music. He's sort of Jerry Herman meets Cantor and Neb meets Sondheim a little bit. Isn't it funny that both Grind and Adal's life were both at the Mark Hellinger Theater, which is now a church, I think. It's one of the, oh my God, that theater is gorgeous. Grind was incredible. It had elements of every kind of show you could think of. It had the Hal Prince stamp for sure. It had a luscious score by Larry Grossman. It had showstoppers. It had ballads. Um, it had old Broadway and new Broadway. Uh, Stubby K, old Broadway, right? New-ish Broadway. Ben Vereen was a big star already. And then it had Leilani Jones. Like, where on earth did Leilani Jones come from? But she got the leading woman's role uh, and won the Tony Award. One of the great songs that I love in Grind is All Things to One Man. I think that's, yes, I'll be all things to one man. I told Larry Grossman when I met him that that was one of my favorite musical theater songs that I sang all the time in the car. I think I scared him a little. Um, and the set was enormous. It was a huge show. And many times, even today, I leave the theater and I say, there's a good show in there. There's a good show in there for grind. There really is. It's There's too much delicious stuff. But what I mostly remember about it is that score and the opening number, This Must Be The Place. That is one of the most thrilling opening numbers for a Broadway musical. I dare you to not listen to it over and over and over again if you can find the album. And that's what I remember about Grind. I think how I want to end today is your feelings about musical theater in general. What has it taught you? What do you like about it? What do you love about it? I love the writing process. It's the, that's the best part. And uh, I love that when it gets on a stage, it's different every night. Mm. Um, no, it's just the fact that it's, it's live. And it's, it can be good or it can be terrible, but it's live. Well, you, you came into the Broadway club at a very interesting time. 1970 was right at the end of the Golden Age as know. as we know like it. Like a few years too late in the Golden Age. Yeah, I think a couple of years earlier, many sports would have been hit. All right. So I went and got your uh, show tunes book on your shelf. That's by your one, two, three, four, five, six Emmy Awards. <laughs> okay, and here is the table of content. We got, you know, your Jerome Kern, your Irving Berlin, your George Gershwin. And oh, look right there. There's Mr. Larry Grossman. I mean, I just Right in between was... Stephen Schwartz and Mitch Lee. I just thought it was it was an honor. That's pretty dang awesome. That's gotta make you feel good. Yes. That regardless of, of how long it runs or what even the audience or critics say, the the thing that nobody can take away from you is oh. that creative process. Well, Larry Grossman, it has been a true honor for me. I mean, you're in the book, but I'm it's the one. Great. It was great to kind of be be able to call on that all those experiences and 
not regurgitate, but you know what I mean, but be able <laughs> yeah. to spill them out. Thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you for your contributions to musical theater. And uh, everybody out there, go out and check out Larry Grossman and all of the cast albums that do exist uh, because you'll discover some great stuff. As always, if you want to request a specific show that we cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com and don't forget to follow us on twitter and instagram at a musical podcast for more great content thanks so much everybody and uh larry grossman see you on the boards Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.